Elijah by A.W. Pink Preface From one generation to another, the servants of the Lord have sought to edify their fellow believers by commenting on the Old Testament narrative. In such ministries, expositions of the life of Elijah have always been prominent. His sudden appearance out of complete obscurity, his dramatic interventions into the national history of Israel, his miracles, his departure from earth in a chariot of fire, all serve to captivate the thought of preacher and writer alike. The New Testament sustains this interest. If Christ Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses, Elijah too has his New Testament counterpart in John, the greatest of the prophets. And even more remarkably, Elijah himself in living person reappears to view when, with Moses, he stands on the mount of the excellent glory to speak of the strife that won our life with the incarnate Son of God. What a superb honor was this! As Moses and Elijah are the names which shine in dual grandeur in the closing chapters of the Old Testament, they likewise appear as living representatives of the Lord's redeemed host, the resurrected and the translated, on the holy mount, their theme, the Exodus, which their Savior and Lord was to accomplish at the time appointed by the Father. It is the translated representative, the second of the two marvelous Old Testament exceptions to the universal reign of death, who is portrayed in the following pages. He comes in like a tempest who went out in a whirlwind, says the 17th century Bishop Hall. The first that we hear from him is an oath and a threat. His words, like lightnings, seem to cleave the firmament of Israel. On one famous occasion, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel answered them by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. Throughout Elijah's astonishing career, judgment and mercy were mingled. From the moment when he steps forth without father, without mother, as if he had been a son of the earth, to the day when his mantle fell from him, and he crossed the river of death without tasting death, he exercised a ministry only paralleled by that of Moses, his companion on the mount. He was, says Bishop Hall, the most eminent prophet reserved for the most corrupt age. It is therefore fitting that the lessons which may legitimately be drawn from Elijah's ministry should be presented afresh to our own generation. The agelessness of prophecy is a striking witness to its divine origin. The prophets are withdrawn, but their messages give a light to each succeeding age. History repeats itself. The wickedness and idolatry rampant in Ahab's reign live on in our gross 20th century profanities and corruptions. The worldliness and ungodliness of a Jezebel, in all their painted hideousness, have not only intruded into the present-day scene, but have become ensconced in our homes and our public life. A.W. Pink, 1886-1952, author of this Life of Elijah, had a wide experience of conditions in the English-speaking world. Before finally settling in Britain during the 30s, he had exercised his ministries in Australia and the United States of America. Thereafter, he devoted himself to biblical exposition, largely carried on by means of the magazine which he established. His study of Elijah is particularly suited to the needs of the present day. Our lot is cast in a time of widespread and deep departure from the ancient landmarks of the people of the Lord. Truths which were dear to our forefathers are now trodden underfoot as the mire of the streets. Many indeed claim to preach and republish truth in a new garb, 
but the new garb has proved to be the shroud of truth rather than its authentic, beautiful garments as known to the ancient prophets. Mr. Pink clearly felt called to the task of smiting the ungodless of the age with the rod of God's anger. With this object, he undertakes the exposition of Elijah's ministry, applying it to the contemporary situation. He has a message for his own nation and also for the people of God. He shows that the ancient challenge, where is the Lord God of Elijah, is no mere rhetorical question, where indeed, have we lost our faith in him? Has effectual fervent prayer no place in our hearts? Can we not learn from the life of a man subject to like passions as we are? If we possess the wisdom which is from above, we shall say with Josiah, Lord, with this grace our hearts inspire, answer our sacrifice with fire, and by thy mighty acts declare, thou art the God who heareth prayer. If such aspirations are ours, the life of Elijah will fan the sacred flame. If we lack them, may the Lord use the work to bring conviction to our sluggish spirits and to convince us that the test of Carmel is still completely valid. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. Chapter 1. Elijah's Dramatic Appearance Elijah appeared on the stage of public action during one of the darkest hours of Israel's sad history. He is introduced to us at the beginning of 1 Kings 17, and we have but to read through the previous chapters to discover what a deplorable state God's people were then in. Israel had grievously and flagrantly departed from Jehovah, and that which directly opposed him had been publicly set up. Never before had the favored nation sunk so low. Fifty-eight years had passed since the kingdom had been rent in twain following the death of Solomon. During that brief period, no less than seven kings had reigned over the ten tribes, and all of them, without exception, were wicked men. Painful indeed it is to trace their sad course, and still more tragic to behold how there has been a repetition of the same in the history of Christendom. The first of those seven kings was Jeroboam. Concerning him we read that he made two calves of gold and said unto the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. 1 Kings 12, verses 28 through 32. Let it be duly and carefully noted that the apostasy began with the corrupting of the priesthood by installing into the divine service men who were never called and equipped by God. Of the next king, Nadab, it is said, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. 1 Kings 15, verse 26. He was succeeded on the throne by the very man who murdered him, Baasha, 1 Kings 15.27 Next came Elah, a drunkard, who in turn was a murderer, 1 Kings 16.8-9 His successor, Zimri, 
was guilty of treason, 1 Kings 16.20. He was followed by a military adventurer of the name of Amr. Of him we are told, But Amr wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. 1 Kings 16, verses 25 and 26. The evil cycle was completed by Amri's son, for he was even more vile than those who had preceded him. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal, and worshipped him. 1 Kings 16, 30 and 31 This marriage of Ahab to a heathen princess was, as might fully be expected, for we cannot trample God's law beneath our feet with impunity, fraught with the most frightful consequences. In a short time all trace of the pure worship of Jehovah vanished from the land, and gross idolatry became rampant. The golden calves were worshipped at Dan and Bethel. A temple had been erected to Baal in Samaria. The groves of Baal appeared on every side, and the priests of Baal took full charge of the religious life of Israel. It was openly declared that Baal lived and that Jehovah ceased to be. What a shocking state of things had come to pass is clear from, and Abraham made a grove, and Abraham did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. 1 Kings 16.33 Defiance of the Lord God and blatant wickedness had now reached their culminating point. This is made still further evident by, In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. Verse 34 Awful effrontery was this, for of old it had been recorded, Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall be set up the gates of it. Joshua 6.26 The rebuilding of the accursed Jericho was open defiance of God. Now it was in the midst of this spiritual darkness and degradation that there appeared on the stage of public action, with dramatic suddenness, a solitary but striking witness to and for the living God. An eminent commentator began his remarks upon 1 Kings 17 by saying, The most illustrious prophet Elijah was raised up in the reign of the most wicked of the kings of Israel. That is a terse but accurate summing up of the situation in Israel at that time. Not only so, but it supplies the key to all that follows. It is truly saddening to contemplate the awful conditions which then prevailed. Every light had been extinguished. Every voice of divine testimony was hushed. Spiritual death was spread over everything, and it looked as though Satan had indeed obtained mastery of the situation. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. 1 Kings 17.1 God with a high hand now raised up a powerful witness for himself. Elijah is here brought to our notice in a most abrupt manner. Nothing is recorded of his parentage or previous manner of life. 
we do not even know to which tribe he belonged, though the fact that he was of the inhabitants of Gilead makes it likely that he pertained either to Gad or Manasseh, for Gilead was divided between them. Gilead lay east of the Jordan. It was wild and rugged. Its hills were covered with shaggy forests. Its awful solitudes were only broken by the dash of mountain streams. Its valleys were the haunt of fierce wild beasts. As we have pointed out above, Elijah is introduced to us in the divine narrative in a strange manner, without anything being told us of his ancestry or early life. We believe there is a typical reason why the Spirit made no reference to Elijah's origin. Like Melchizedek, the beginning and close of his history is shrouded in sacred mystery. As the absence of any mention of Melchizedek's birth and death was divinely designed to foreshadow the eternal priesthood and kingship of Christ, so the fact that we know nothing of Elijah's father and mother, and the further fact that he was supernaturally translated from this world without passing through the portals of death, mark him as the typical forerunner of the everlasting prophet. Thus the omission of such details foreshadowed the endlessness of Christ's prophetic office. The fact that we are told Elijah was one of the inhabitants of Gilead is no doubt recorded as a sidelight upon his natural training, one which ever exerts a powerful influence on the forming of character. The people of those hills reflected the nature of their environment. They were rough and rugged, solemn and stern, dwelling in rude villages and subsisting by keeping flocks of sheep. Hardened by an open-air life, dressed in a cloak of camel's hair, accustomed to spending most of his time in solitude, possessed of sinewy strength which enabled him to endure great physical strain, Elijah would present a marked contrast with the town dwellers in the lowland valleys, and more especially would he be distinguished from the pampered courtiers of the palace. What age he was when the Lord first granted Elijah a personal and saving revelation of himself, we have no means of knowing, as we have no information about his early religious training. But there is one sentence in a later chapter which enables us to form a definite idea of the spiritual caliber of the man. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. 1 Kings 19.10 Those words cannot mean less than that he had God's glory greatly at heart and that the honor of his name meant more to him than anything else. Consequently, he must have been deeply grieved and filled with holy indignation as he became more and more informed about the terrible character and wide extent of Israel's defection from Jehovah. There can be little room for doubt that Elijah must have been thoroughly familiar with the scriptures, especially the first books of the Old Testament. Knowing how much the Lord had done for Israel, the signal favors he had bestowed upon them, he must have yearned with deep desire that they should please and glorify him. But when he learned that this was utterly lacking, and as tidings reached him of what was happening on the other side of the Jordan, as he became informed of how Jezebel had thrown down God's altars, slain his servants, and replaced them with the idolatrous priests of heathendom, his soul must have been filled with horror, and his blood made to boil with indignation, for he was very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Would that more of such righteous indignation filled and fired us today? Probably the question which now most deeply exercised Elijah was, how should he act? What could he do, a rude, uncultured child of the desert? The more he pondered it, the more difficult the situation must have seemed, and no doubt Satan whispered in his ear, you can do nothing, 
Conditions are hopeless. But there was one thing he could do. Betake himself to the grand resource of all deeply tried souls, he could pray. And he did. As James 5.17 tells us, he prayed earnestly. He prayed because he was assured that the Lord God lived and ruled over all. He prayed because he realized that God is almighty and that with him all things are possible. He prayed because he felt his own weakness and insufficiency and therefore turned to the one who is clothed with might and is infinitely self-sufficient. But in order to be effectual, prayer must be grounded on the word of God, for without faith it is impossible to please him, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 Now there was one particular passage in the earlier book of scripture which seems to have been specifically fixed on Elijah's attention. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. That was exactly the crime of which Israel was now guilty. They had turned aside to worship false gods. Suppose then that this divinely threatened judgment should not be executed. Would it not indeed appear that Jehovah was but a myth, a dead tradition? And Elijah was very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, and accordingly we are told that he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. James 5.17 Thus we learn once more what true prayer is. It is faith laying hold of the word of God, pleading it before him and saying, Do as thou hast said. 2 Samuel 7.25 He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Do some of our readers exclaim, What a terrible prayer! Then we ask, Was it not far more terrible that the favored descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should despise and turn away from the Lord God and blatantly insult him by worshiping Baal? Would they desire the thrice holy one to wink at such enormities? Are his righteous laws to be trampled upon with such impunity? Shall he refuse to enforce their just penalties? What conception would men form of the divine character if he ignored their open defiance of himself? Let scripture answer. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Yes, and not only so, but as God declared, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Psalm 50, verse 21 Ah, my reader, there is something far more dreadful than physical calamity and suffering, namely, moral delinquency and spiritual apostasy. Alas, that this is so rarely perceived today. What are crimes against man in comparison with high-handed sins against God? Likewise, what are national reverses in comparison with the loss of God's favor? The fact is that Elijah had a true sense of values. He was very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, and therefore he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Desperate diseases call for drastic measures. And as he prayed, Elijah obtained assurance that his petition was granted, and that he must go and acquaint Ahab. Whatever danger the prophet might personally incur, both the king and his subjects should learn the direct connection between the terrible drought and their sins which had occasioned it. 
The task which now confronted Elijah was no ordinary one, and it called for more than common courage. For an untutored rustic of the hills to appear uninvited before a king who defied heaven was sufficient to quell the bravest, the more so when his heathen consort shrank not from slaying any who opposed her will, in fact, who had already put many of God's servants to death. What likelihood, then, was there of this lonely Gilead escaping with his life? But the righteous are bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. They who are right with God are neither daunted by difficulties nor dismayed by dangers. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Psalm 3.6 Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Psalm 27.3 such is the blessed serenity of those whose conscience is void of offense and whose trust is in the living God. The hour for the execution of his stern task had arrived, and Elijah leaves his home in Gilead to deliver unto Ahab his message of judgment. Picture him on his long and lonely journey. What were the subjects which engaged his mind? Would he be reminded of a similar mission on which Moses had embarked? when he was sent by the Lord to deliver his ultimatum to the haughty monarch of Egypt? Well, the message which he bore would be no more palatable to the degenerate king of Israel. Yet such a recollection need in no wise deter or intimidate him. Rather, should the remembrance of the sequel strengthen his faith. The Lord God had not failed his servant Moses, but had stretched forth his mighty arm on his behalf, and in the end had given him full success. The wondrous works of God in the past should ever hearten his servants and saints in the present. Chapter 2 The Heavens Shut Up When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 59.19 What is signified by the enemy coming in like a flood? The figure used here is a graphic and expressive one. It is that of an abnormal deluge which results in the submerging of the land, the imperiling of property and life itself, a deluge threatening to carry everything before it. Aptly does such a figure depict the moral experience of the world in general, and of specially favored sections of it in particular, at different periods in their history. Again and again, a flood of evil has broken loose, a flood of such alarming dimensions that it appeared as though Satan would succeed in beating down everything holy before him, when, by an inundation of idolatry, impiety, and iniquity, the cause of God upon earth seemed in imminent danger of being completely swept away. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, we have but to glance at the context to discover what is meant by such language. We wait for light, but behold obscurity, for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil is accounted mad. Isaiah 59, 9-15 See margin of verse 15 Nevertheless, when the devil has 
brought in a flood of lying errors and lawlessness has become ascendant, the Spirit of God intervenes and thwarts Satan's vile purpose. The solemn verses quoted above accurately describe the awful conditions which obtained in Israel under the reign of Ahab and his heathen consort Jezebel. Because of their multiplied transgressions, God had given up the people to blindness and darkness, and a spirit of falsehood and madness possessed their hearts. In consequence, truth was fallen in the street, ruthlessly trampled underfoot by the masses. Idolatry had become the state religion. The worship of Baal was the order of the day. Wickedness was rampant on every side. The enemy had indeed come in like a flood, and it looked as though there was no barrier left which could stem its devastating effects. Then it was that the Spirit of the Lord lifted up a standard against him, making public demonstration that the God of Israel was highly displeased with the sins of the people and would now visit their iniquities upon them. That heavenly standard was raised aloft by the hand of Elijah. God has never left himself without witnesses on earth. In the darkest seasons of human history, the Lord has raised up and maintained a testimony for himself. Neither persecution nor corruption could entirely destroy it. In the days of the antediluvians, when the earth was filled with violence and all flesh had corrupted its way, Jehovah had an Enoch and a Noah to act as his mouthpieces. When the Hebrews were reduced to abject slavery in Egypt, the Most High sent forth Moses and Aaron as his ambassadors, and at every subsequent period in their history one prophet after another was sent to them. So also has it been throughout the whole course of Christendom. In the days of Nero, in the time of Charlemagne, and even in the darkest ages, despite the incessant opposition of the papacy, the lamp of truth was never extinguished. And so here in 1 Kings 17, we behold again the unchanging faithfulness of God to his covenant by bringing upon the scene one who was jealous for his glory and who feared not to denounce his enemies. Having already dwelt upon the significance of the particular office which Elijah exercised and taken a look at his mysterious personality, let us now consider the meaning of his name. A most striking and declarative one it was, for Elijah may be rendered, My God is Jehovah, or Jehovah is my God. The apostate nation had adopted Baal as their deity, but our prophet's name proclaimed the true God of Israel. Judging from the analogy of scripture, we may safely conclude that this name was given to him by his parents, probably under prophetic impulse or in consequence of a divine communication. Nor will this be deemed a fanciful idea by those acquainted with the word. Lamech called his son Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us, or be a rest to us, concerning our work. Genesis 5.29 Noah signifying rest or comfort. Joseph gave names to his sons expressive of God's particular providences to him. Genesis 41.51.52 Hannah's name for her son, 1 Samuel 1.20, and the wife of Phinehas for hers, 1 Samuel 4. 19 through 22 are further illustrations. We may observe that the same principle holds good in connection with many of the places mentioned in Scripture. Babel, Genesis 11:9; Beersheba, Genesis 21:31; Massa and Meribah, Exodus 17:7; 7, and Cable, 1 Kings 9:13, margin, being cases in point. 
Indeed, no one who desires to understand the sacred writings can afford to neglect a careful attention to proper names. The importance of this receives confirmation in the example of our Lord himself. For when bidding the blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam, it was at once added, which is, by interpretation, sent. John 9.7 Again, when Matthew records the angel's command to Joseph that the Savior was to be named Jesus, the Spirit moved him to add, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. 1, 21, and 23. Compare also the words, which is being interpreted, in Acts 4, 36, and Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. It will thus be seen that the example of the apostles warrants us to educe instruction from proper names, for if not all of them, many embody important truths. Yet this must be done with modesty and according to the analogy of Scripture, and not with dogmatism or for the purpose of establishing any new doctrine. How aptly the name Elijah corresponded to the prophet's mission and message is at once apparent, and what encouragement every consideration of it would afford him. We may also couple with his striking name the fact that the Holy Spirit had designated Elijah the Tishbite, which, significantly enough, denotes the stranger here. And we must also take note of the additional detail that he was of the inhabitants of Gilead, which name means rocky, because of the mountainous nature of that country. It is ever such a one whom God takes up and uses in a critical hour, a man who was out and out for him, in separation from the religious evil of his day, and who dwells on high, a man who, in the midst of fearful declension, carries in his heart the testimony of God. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. 1 Kings 17.1 This memorable event occurred some 860 years before the birth of Christ. For the dramatic suddenness, the exceeding boldness, and the amazing character of it, there are few of a like nature in sacred history. Unannounced and unattended, a plain man dressed in humble garb appeared before Israel's apostate king as the messenger of Jehovah and the herald of dire judgment. No one in the court would know much, if anything, about him, for he had just emerged from the obscurity of Gilead to stand before Ahab with the keys of heaven in his hand. Such are often the witnesses to his truth which God employed. At his bidding they come and go. Not from the ranks of the influential and learned do they issue. They are not the products of this world, nor does the world place any laurels on their brow. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. There is much more in this expression, the Lord God of Israel liveth, than meets the eye at first glance. Observe that it is not simply, the Lord God liveth, but the Lord God of Israel, which is also to be distinguished from the wider term, the Lord of hosts. At least three things are signified thereby. First, the Lord God of Israel, through particular emphasis upon his special relationship to the favored nation. Jehovah was their king, their ruler, the one with whom they had to do. 
the one with whom they had entered into a solemn covenant. Second, Ahab is thereby informed that he liveth. This grand fact had evidently been called in question. During the reigns of one king after another, Israel had openly mocked and defied Jehovah, and no dire consequences had followed. And so the false idea had come to prevail that the Lord had no real existence. Third, this affirmation, the Lord God of Israel liveth, pointed a striking contrast with the lifeless idols whose impotency should now be made apparent, unable to defend their deluded worshippers from the wrath of God. Though for wise reasons of his own, God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Romans 9.22, yet he affords clear and sufficient proof throughout the course of human history that he is even now the governor of the wicked and the avenger of sin. Such a proof was then given to Israel. Notwithstanding the peace and prosperity which the kingdom had long enjoyed, the Lord was highly incensed at the gross manner in which he had been publicly insulted, and the time had arrived for him severely to chasten the wayward people. Accordingly, he sent Elijah to Ahab to announce the nature and duration of his courage. It is to be duly noted that the prophet came with his awe-inspiring message not to the people but to the king himself, the responsible head, the one who had it in his power to rectify what was wrong by banishing all idols from his dominions. Elijah was now called upon to deliver a most unpalatable message unto the most powerful man in all Israel. But conscious that God was with him, he flinched not from such a task. Suddenly confronting Ahab, Elijah at once made it evident that he was faced by one who had no fear of him, king though he were. His first words informed Israel's degenerate monarch that he had to do with the living God. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, was an outspoken confession of the prophet's faith, as it also directed attention to the one whom Ahab had forsaken, before whom I stand, that is, whose servant I am, see Deuteronomy 10.8 and Luke 1.19, in whose name I approach you, in whose veracity and power I unquestioningly rely, in whose ineffable presence I am now conscious of standing, to whom I have prayed and obtained answer. There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Frightful prospect was that. From the expression, the early and the latter rain, Deuteronomy 11.14, Jeremiah 5.24, we gather that normally Palestine experienced a dry season of several months' duration. But though no rain fell then, heavy dews descended at night which greatly refreshed vegetation. But for neither dew nor rain to fall, and that for a period of years, was a terrible judgment indeed. That land, so rich and fertile, as to be designated one which flowed with milk and honey, would quickly be turned into one of drought and barrenness, entailing famine, pestilence, and death. And when God withholds rain, none can create it. Are there any among the vanities, false gods, of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Jeremiah 14.22 how that reveals the utter impotency of idols and the madness of those who render them homage. The exacting ordeal facing Elijah in confronting Ahab and delivering such a message called for no ordinary moral strength. This will be the more evident if we direct attention to a detail which seems to have quite escaped the commentators, one which is only apparent by a careful comparison of scripture with scripture. Elijah told the king, There shall be no dew nor rain these years, 
while in 1 Kings 18.1 the sequel says and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying go show thyself unto Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth 1 Kings 18.1 on the other hand Christ declared many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months when great famine was throughout all the land Luke 4.25 how then are we to explain those extra six months in this way there had already been a six months drought when Elijah visited Ahab we can well imagine how furious the king would be when told that the terrible drought was to last another three years yes the unpleasant task before Elijah called for no ordinary resolution and boldness and well may we inquire what was the secret of his remarkable courage how are we to account for his strength some of the Jewish rabbis have contended that he was an angel but that cannot be for the New Testament expressly informs us that he was a man subject to like passions as we are James 5.17 yes he was but a man nevertheless he trembled not in the presence of a monarch though a man yet he had power to close heaven's windows and dry up earth's streams but the question returns upon us how are we to account for the full assurance with which he foretold the protracted drought his confidence that all would be according to his word how was it that one so weak in himself became mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds we suggest a threefold reason as to the secret of Elijah's strength first his praying Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months James 5.17 let it be duly noted that the prophet did not begin his fervent supplications after his appearance before Ahab but six months before here then lies the explanation of his assurance and boldness before the king prayer in private was the source of his power in public he could stand unabashed in the presence of the wicked monarch because he had knelt in humility before God but let it also be carefully observed that the prophet had prayed earnestly no formal and spiritless devotion that accomplished nothing was his but wholehearted fervent and effectual second his knowledge of God this is clearly intimated in his words to Ahab as the Lord God of Israel liveth Jehovah was to him a living reality on all sides the open recognition of God had ceased so far as outward appearances went there was not a soul in Israel who believed in his existence but Elijah was not swayed by public opinion and practice why should he be when he had within his own breast an experience which enabled him to say with Job I know that my Redeemer liveth the infidelity and atheism of others cannot shake the faith of one who has apprehended God for himself it is this which explains Elijah's courage as it did on a later occasion the uncompromising faithfulness of Daniel and his three fellow Hebrews he who really knows God is strong Daniel 11.32 and fears not man third his consciousness of the divine presence as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand Elijah was not only assured of the reality of Jehovah's existence but he was conscious of being in his presence though appearing before the person of Ahab the prophet knew he was in the presence of one infinitely greater than any earthly monarch 
even him before whom the highest angels bow in adoring worship. Gabriel himself could not make a grander avowal, Luke 1.19. Ah, my reader, such a blessed assurance as this lifts us up above fear. If the Almighty was with him, why should the prophet tremble before a worm of the earth? The Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, clearly reveals the foundation on which his soul rested as he executed his unpleasant task. Chapter 3 The Book Cherith Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. James 5.17 Elijah is here brought before us as an example of what may be accomplished by the earnest prayers of one righteous man. Verse 16 Ah, my reader, mark well the descriptive adjective, for it is not every man, nor even every Christian, who obtains definite answer to his prayers. Far from it. A righteous man is one who is right with God in a practical way, one whose conduct is pleasing in his sight, one who keeps his garments unspotted from the world, who is in separation from religious evil, for there is no evil on earth half so dishonoring and displeasing to God as religious evil. See Luke 10, 12-15 and Revelation 11, verse 8. Such a one has the ear of heaven, for there is no moral barrier between his soul and a sin-hating God. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. 1 John 3:22. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. What a terrible petition to present before the majesty on high. What incalculable privation and suffering the granting of such a request would entail. The fair land of Palestine would be turned into a parched and sterile wilderness, and its inhabitants would be wasted by a protracted famine with all its attendant horrors. Then was this prophet a cold and callous stoic, devoid of natural affection? No, indeed. The Holy Spirit has taken care to tell us in this very verse that he was a man subject to like passions as we are. And that is mentioned immediately before the record of his fearful petition. And what does that description signify in such a connection? Why, why this, that though Elijah was endowed with tender sensibilities and warm regard for his fellow creatures, yet in his prayers he rose above all fleshly sentimentality. Why was it Elijah prayed that it might not rain? Not because he was impervious to human suffering, not because he took a fiendish delight in witnessing the misery of his neighbors, but because he put the glory of God before everything else, even before his own natural feelings. Recall what has been pointed out in an earlier chapter concerning the spiritual conditions that then obtained in Israel. Not only was there no longer any public recognition of God, no, not throughout the length and breadth of the land, but on every side he was openly insulted and defied by Baal worshippers. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.stillwaters.com.
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.